First person to find it, shout out the page. 1015. Thank you, Emily. 1 Peter 3, 8 to 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, it's been said that you can tell what a pastor's been reading by what he's been preaching. Uh, So I've known about this book for a long time. I've known of the story for the long time. It's been on my shelf for a long time. But I finally just finished a book called The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. And if you're familiar with Corey's story, it's a really good companion to a book like First Peter. Now, if you haven't heard of Corey Ten Boom, I'll bring you up to speed a little bit. Her full name is Cornelia Ten Boom, and she was born in Holland, which is now the Netherlands, in 1892. Now, Corey grew up in a house filled with siblings and aunts, not the insects, but the uh, sisters of your mom or dad, uh, and foster kids, and even at times, uh, mentally handicapped children. They taught them the Bible at their house. Corey's dad, his name was Casper, uh, was an expert watchmaker, and his watch shop was at the bottom floor of their home. Every morning, the entire Ten Boom household would begin the day by listening to Casper reading from a chapter of the Bible. In short, the Ten Boom family loved Jesus, and they belonged to the Dutch Reformed Church. A placard in their home captured the mantra of the Ten Boom family, uh, simply put, Jesus is Victor. Now, Corey and her sister Betsy never married, and so they stayed at home to help their dad run the family business after their mother had died. And it wasn't until they were well into middle age that Nazi Germany invaded and conquered Holland. So Corey, Betsy, and Casper's house soon became a central hub in the underground effort to hide Jewish people in their area. In fact, they would take in the Jewish people that no one else in the underground wanted, those who were dangerous. The Ten Booms developed an intricate system to provide safe haven for many people, but eventually they were caught and arrested 
and they were eventually sent to a concentration camp. So that's a little bit of a teaser. If you haven't read The Hiding Place, it is so worth your time. And Corey's story helps put some flesh and bones on the entire letter of First Peter, but especially the section we're in today, First Peter 3, 8 to 17. Now, after reading the, her story, Corey would definitely not want to be the hero of this sermon. She would want Jesus to be the hero of this sermon. This is important to keep in mind when coming to any text that deals with a lot of do's and don'ts. But I think here's how we might summarize 1 Peter 3, 8 to 17, if we put it in our own words. Because of Christ, when we suffer for his name, we can stick together, we can love our enemies, and we can maintain our hope. Those three little subpoints will guide us through this passage this morning. Stick together, love our enemies, and maintain our hope. First, because of Christ, when we suffer for his name, we can stick together. Here we're looking again at verse 8, where it says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Once again, Peter links what he has said previously to what he is saying now. Previously, Peter's given a series of instructions to various groups within the church. If you just look before this passage, you'll see that he's given instructions to those who are living under governing authorities. He's given instructions to slaves. He's given instructions to wives and to husbands. All these instructions began when Peter told them to live out their new identity that Jesus has won for them. So if you look back earlier in chapter two, he says that now in Christ, they are a chosen race. They are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He goes on to say, live like that. Live out your new identity, especially as you live in the world. Even though it's a world that's often hostile and cruel toward you. So after zooming in on various groups within the church, he zooms back out to look at the church as the whole. He says, finally, all of you. This is important to see. This is for all of us, not just for some of us. These qualities he's going to list off are not just for the leaders. They're not just for the more involved. They're not just for those who are especially interested. They are for all of us in the church. We are to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Five qualities. Now, I think if you look at these closely, they come in two pairs, and there is one centerpiece. So the first and the last are similar. They go together. Unity of mind, a humble mind. The second and the fourth, I think, are similar too, and they go together. Sympathy, a tender heart, and then brotherly love seems to be the centerpiece of them all. So let's look at all these briefly. Uh, First, unity of mind, humble mind. Now, think about the context you and I live in. For as much as our culture praises things like unity, our culture praises things like inclusion, but don't we live in a more divided age than really ever before? There are more divisions and tribes and groups that partisan politics is turned up to 10 the thing is here, we are told to be united. So if we are going to be united, there must be something that unites us. There must be something, rather someone, that goes deeper than all of the divisions that riddle us. And that someone is Christ. 
We rejoice when we remember Ephesians chapter two, that on the cross, Jesus did more than reconcile those who trust in him to the father. Jesus also reconciled those who trust in him to each other. So that now he is the basis of our unity, that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But if you look closely at what Peter wants for us, Peter champions not just unity, he champions a unity of mind. He wants us to have a united mindset or a united outlook or a united perspective. Now, what is this mindset? Well, it's the mindset of humility. It's the same mindset of Christ. This is described in Philippians chapter two. You might know this passage. Philippians 2, 5 to 7 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be taken advantage of, but he emptied himself. Unity and humility go together. Unity around Jesus is possible only if we have humility about ourselves. One commentator writes this. He clarifies that to be humble is more than just having a poor self-assessment. It's more than just saying, I'm no good. No, to be humble is a willingness to take a lower place. To be humble is a willingness to take the less exalted service. It's a willingness to put the interests of others ahead of the interests of yourself. Fellow believer in Jesus, all of us are called to have a humble mind. Fellow believer in Jesus, if your Savior was willing to take the lower place, in fact, the lowest place, who are you to say that you are above taking the lower place? All of us are called to have unity and humility. All of us also are called to have sympathy and a tender heart. Another one of these pairs. Now, I think this is Jesus's heart that is now in us. Remember how Jesus is described in a place like Hebrews 4, verse 15. He is called a high priest who is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. So like Jesus, his followers are now affected by one another's joys and sorrows. Like Jesus, his followers have sympathy for each other. And that sympathy leads to action. That sympathy leads you to step in and help your brother or your sister. Sympathy and a tender heart. Remember how Jesus is described, how he reacted when he saw the thousands of people crowded together to hear him. Mark 6, 34 says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That word compassion is the same word here for a tender heart. That tells us that we care about others not just because we understand what they're going through, that we care for others because we feel what they're going through. The Bible says when one part of the church hurts, the whole church hurts. We should have sympathy and a tender heart. Now, at the very center of these virtues that all of us are called to have is brotherly love. We are to love one another. The love that Jesus has shown to us should now be on display in us. Friend, this is a central mark of what it means to follow Christ. If you want to know who the Christians are, 
Look at how they're loving one another. This is what Jesus said in John 13. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people that will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So all of us, not just some of us, are to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. These qualities are vital. But I would argue that when you remember the context of 1 Peter, where Christians are suffering, these qualities become even more important. Let me prove that to you with a story from Corey Ten Boom's life. Now, Corey and her sister Betsy ended up at Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany, and they were crowded into a flea-infested dormitory. Now, this dorm was built to house 400 women, but by the time Corey and Betsy got there, there were some 2,000 women living inside of it. And not soon long after, winter came as they lived there. And Corey writes this, As the cold increased, so did the special temptation of concentration camp life. The temptation to think only of oneself. And it took a thousand cunning forms. One form Corey describes is how she acted during the roll call. So every morning, these thousands of women would be gathered to stand together outside and they would take roll. And they would sometimes have to stand in the cold for hours. Corey writes how eventually she found a way to maneuver herself into the center of this formation so that she wouldn't have to be on the edge of it, bracing the bitter wind and the bitter cold. She told herself, well, all the women from Poland, they can handle it better than I can. They're used to the cold. She told herself, me and my sister, we have this Bible study ministry going. We can't can't afford to put ourselves at risk. We need to be preserved. We're too important. What Corey recognized in herself, what the Spirit soon convicted her of, is that she was looking out only for herself. The qualities Peter tells us to have as Christians, they are vital all the time. They are especially vital when we are going through hardship or suffering. During hardship or suffering, we might especially be tempted to look out only for ourselves. But friends, I think it's part of God's wisdom that in suffering and hardship, we are helped by others. And often the way we get help is by helping others. I think that's just how God has wired us. Brothers and sisters, the more pressure and scrutiny you face that, that comes with following Jesus, the more important it will be for you to stick together with fellow believers. So it's my prayer that this church would be a type of refuge for you as it gets harder to follow Jesus in the world. But if this church, if this place, is, if, if this group of people is going to be a refuge for you, we need you to do that. We need each one of you to do that. So brother and sister, when you come to church on Sunday mornings, would you resolve not to come here and just listen and receive? Would you resolve to come here and take what you listen and receive and use it to be a refuge and an encouragement and a strength for your brother and sister here because we need each other. Because Christ has united us together, we can stick together even when we suffer for his name. Point number two, because of Christ, when we suffer for his name, we can love our enemies. Here we're looking at verse nine. So in verse nine, it seems like Peter has transitioned from how we treat those within the church 
now to how we treat those who are outside of the church. Now, when you read verse 9, I'm sure you could conclude just with, uh, you could agree with me, that it's important that we apply verse 9 to people in the church and people outside the church. Right, if everybody at church always responded tit for tat, if everybody at the church, if, if no one here ever took the high road, if everyone at church always held grudges and always took vengeance, well, the church is just going to cave in on itself. But I do think Peter has in mind primarily how to respond to those outside of the church. Those were the ones who were causing their suffering. So how should they respond? They are not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. That word repay, I think this concept of payment might help us understand this. So when someone wrongs you, when someone reviles you or mocks you, especially for your faith in Christ, it's natural for you and me to think, I now owe this person the same thing that they gave to me. That's what we are tempted to pay them back with. But Peter says, you owe that person not what he deserves, but what he doesn't deserve. Though he deserves curse, you are to pay him blessing. You might say, that sounds hard. My friend, when you do that, think about this. Christian, you demonstrate the gospel when you do that. That's what I pray that you understand and receive and live out today. You should be reminded that you and I, we have done evil against God. That is what we have paid him. By living your own way, you have effectively reviled God. You have mocked him. You have effectively said, every time you sin, you tell God, God, you're not in charge, I am. God, you're not Lord over my life, I am. And in fact, God, I can do a better job at being God than you do. Every time you sin, you think sin is small. This is what you say. This is the heart that's underneath sin. How else could it be? When you do that, you are owed a curse. But the glorious good news is that God took the curse that you deserve upon himself through the death of his own son. And when you trust in Christ, though you, are, though you deserve a curse, he takes it for you and you are given the blessing that he deserves. Friends, when you, repay, when you don't repay evil for evil, you are demonstrating the gospel. And can you see how believing the gospel enables you to follow Peter's instruction here? The gospel reminds you that in Christ, you are secured. You are loved. That he has paid all that you owe. The gospel reminds you that you don't need to get even in order to get peace. You have peace already. I pray that is freeing for you as you relate to other people. Beyond that, Peter says that you are called to bless others and not curse them. You're called to do this. This means this is part of what it means to live life as a Christian, to bless those who curse you, to treat with kindness those who treat you with contempt. Peter's words echo our Lord's words in Matthew 5, don't they? We read them earlier you have, heard it, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? 
You know, those who received Peter's letter don't live in that, that different of a world than the world we live in today. They, like us, live in a world where it's important to defend your honor. They, like us, live in a world where it's important never to give your opponent an inch. A world where if your opponent hits, you hit back harder. A world where you don't seek to persuade your opponents. You seek to fight and defeat your opponents. So think of how much loving your enemies and blessing those who curse you could stick out in a world like theirs and in a world like ours. They stuck out for the Ten Boom family. You know, the most famous member of the Ten Boom family is Corey, but if Corey had a say in it, her sister Betsy would be the most famous member. Corey constantly describes her sister as literally, it's like she came from another world. And you know what often evoked this high praise? It was how Betsy treated her opponents. So one day they're in Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. It's been months. And Betsy learned about how her family's operation to high Jewish people was discovered. It was discovered, she learned, by a local man who they knew, but who had become a secret agent for the SS. This man facilitated their arrests. She learned his name. His name was Jan Vogel. And when Corey heard this, she thought of all the other arrests and all the other deaths that this man, this traitor, had facilitated. And Corey said, if I, I knew that if Jan Vogel stood in front of me now, that I could kill him. And then Corey writes, what puzzled me, though, is that all this time was, was Betsy, that she had suffered everything that I had suffered, and yet she seemed to carry no burden of rage. So I asked her, Betsy, don't you feel anything toward this man? Doesn't it bother you? Oh, yes, Corey, it bothers me terribly. I felt for him ever since I knew, and I pray for him whenever he comes to mind. How dreadfully he must be suffering right now. Corey writes, for a long time, I, I lay silent after she said this to me. In the huge shadowy barracks, restless with sighs, snores, and stirrings of hundreds of women, once again I had this feeling that this sister with whom I had spent all my life belonged somehow to another order of beings. Wasn't she telling me in her own gentle way that I was as guilty as Jan Vogel? Didn't he and I stand together before an all-seeing God convicted of the same sin of murder? For I had murdered this man with my heart and with my tongue. So I prayed, Lord, please forgive this man. Please help me to forgive him as well. When we bless and don't curse our opponents, it goes against the grain of our nature and it goes against the grain of our world. It will stick out. Friends, you might not be in a concentration camp, but I wonder today, consider the small ways you might begin to bless and not curse your opponents. I wonder if you could picture a family member or a friend who you regularly disagree with. Go ahead, picture that person. If you tell me I can't picture a person, I'm gonna tell you I don't believe you. A family member or a friend you regularly disagree with who see things differently than you do, who has different opinions than you, how can, picture a conversation you have with that person, a conversation that's cordial and civil. But I'm going to say a conversation that doesn't avoid the topics you disagree on, but actually deals with the topics you disagree on. Picture one of those. Okay. Now, I understand this is a two-way street. 
But I'm just talking about you right now. In a conversation like that, are you able to let this person talk and listen? Are you able to let this person talk and not get upset? Even if you hear them mischaracterize your position, mischaracterize what you think and what you have said, are you going to pounce and jam it down their throat or will you be gracious? I think one of the reasons 1 Peter 3, 9 is in the Bible is that our Lord calls us not just to be interested in winning arguments. Our Lord calls us to be interested in winning over people. So not only does Peter say that we are to bless those who curse us because we're called to do this, he also says we're called to bless those who curse us because we will be blessed if we do this. Now, if all you had in your Bible was 1 Peter 3, 9, you might conclude that the way to blessing is by earning it through your good deeds. Now, that would be ignoring what Peter has previously said. In chapter 1, verse 3, Peter said that it is out of God's great mercy, not because we earned it, that he has given us new life through the death and resurrection of his son. Or in chapter 1, verse 18, or chapter 2, verse 24, Peter said that Jesus died for our sins, and now, because of that, we are able no longer to live in our old ways, but to live after him. So here in chapter 3, Peter goes on to quote Psalm 34, and he describes our new way of life. Those who have been saved now use their words to bless and not to curse. They commit to good, not to evil. This way of life is the evidence that you have been saved, not the basis for why God does save you. Those who belong to God, now those who have been saved, are now no longer characterized by doing evil. They are characterized by doing good. This is their way of life. This way of life takes effort. It's hard to bless those who curse you, but this way of life is fueled and begins by God's grace. Point number three. Because of Jesus, all those who belong to him, all of those who belong to him, can maintain hope in the midst of suffering, can maintain hope in the midst of suffering. So we've arrived at uh, verses 13 through 17, and here Peter turns our gaze to the future. In verse 13, when he asks this rhetorical question, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? He is actually using the future tense. So his question is really more like this. Who will harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? Now, even if you can't spot that in the original language, you can spot that just by looking at the next verse. Look at verse 14. It doesn't contradict verse 13. Verse 14 clarifies verse 13. You can read verse 14 more like this. Indeed, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, look at the future tense, you will be blessed. Peter's talking about a blessing that comes in the future. This future is promised and purchased for those who are in Christ. Peter's talked about this future over and over again. Chapter one, verse four, he mentions the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Chapter one, verse 13, he has told us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here in chapter three, verses 13 and 14, this is Peter's way of saying that if you belong to Jesus, if you trust him, if you trust what he has done in your place, if you walk after him and live like he lives, if that is true of you, he is saying that nothing in the end can harm you. Nothing in the end can take you away 
from the blessing that is coming your way. Jesus has already purchased it by giving himself up for you. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8? Such a sweet promise that nothing in the end will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. My friend, here is a sure hope for you that's not just based on your performance. Here is a sure hope for you that's not based on wishful thinking. It is based on a historical fact that Jesus died and rose again. My friend, if that is true, truly everything in the end will be okay, even for you. My friend, there is no other hope like this. So Peter goes on to say that if you have this Christ-centered hope, especially in the midst of suffering for his name, then it will regulate your fears, it will make you compelling, and it will give you perspective. That's what we'll cover with the last few minutes of our time. If you have this Christ-centered hope, it will regulate your fears. Now, there are two sides to this. Negatively, Peter says, you won't need to fear those who are persecuting you. You won't need to be troubled by them. Positively, he says that in your hearts, you are to honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, when he says in your heart, he's not saying in your hidden and private time. He's saying at your deepest level, believe this. He wants you really to live like it is true that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. So let's put this, put this together. He's telling you, you don't need to fear your persecutors because Jesus is bigger than them. He's telling you that your loving and humble fear of Jesus should outweigh your dreadful and terrifying fear of your persecutors. He's telling you that your persecutors will look small when you remember that Jesus is big. Now, when Peter says this, he's actually alluding to another part of the Bible. We read it earlier. He's alluding to Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 8, the nation of Israel is divided into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Both are afraid of being taken over by foreign powers. This prompts the northern kingdom to link arms with the neighboring country of Syria, and it prompts the southern kingdom to link arms with the neighboring country of Egypt. God speaks to them and tells them, you don't need to fear these foreign powers that are threatening you if you just link arms with me. You don't need to fear your opponents. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. This will regulate your fears, this Christ-centered hope. Here's what this might look like in real life. An example from history. This is the fourth century bishop, John Chrysostom. He was brought before the empress, Eudia, and she threatened him with banishment if he insisted on Christian independence as a preacher. This was John's response to her, this threat of banishment. He tells her, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you said the empress. No, you cannot, said John, for my life is hid with Christ and God. I will take away your treasures. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. I will drive you away from your friends. You'll have no one left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. For there is nothing you can do to harm me. Oh, if you know that, it will regulate your fears. A Christ-centered hope will also make you compelling. 
Peter continues in verse 15. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Whether this is a formal legal setting where they're asked or whether this is a casual encounter where they're interrogated for their faith. Either way, Peter assumes that if you're a Christian, your hope in Christ will be noticeable. It will lead you to to live noticeably different than the people around you. I mean, put this together, right? The only way someone could ask you about your hope is because they have first noticed your hope. And it makes me think of the day and age that we're living we have so much, don't we? I mean, from this like, piece of glass in my phone, I can listen to any song that has ever been recorded. I can watch every movie that's ever been released. I can order any item available on the market. I could talk to any person in the world who has an internet connection. The day and age that we live, we have medicine like we never had before. We have transportation like we never had before. We have wealth like we've never had before. Right? Even if the richest person from 150 years ago were around today, Billions of dollars in a sprawling mansion. They wouldn't have half of the luxuries that we now enjoy. And from all of this, the day and age that we live, we are filled with more panic and more worry and more fear than ever before. Now I understand you have plenty of reasons to fear. Whether it's your bank account or your health or your family or your job or your country or your image. But a world, friend, that is filled with panic and fear What we are saying is that hope will be noticeable. Hope will be noticeable. It makes me think of Paul and Silas, Acts 16, in prison, suffering for Christ, and yet singing. Their hope was compelling. It made the prison guard take notice. Just like their hope was noticed, so our resilient hope will get noticed in our world that is dark and panicked. So this has me thinking, brother, sister, has anyone ever noticed your hope in Christ? Has anyone ever asked you about it? I wonder why not if that hasn't happened. Maybe it could be just because the people around you just aren't interested. Sure, probably. Or maybe it could be because you're, you're not in a season of major suffering of your life. Okay. Or maybe people don't ask you about your hope because you have more or less isolated yourself from other people. You just don't rub shoulders with those who don't have the hope of Christ. Maybe people don't ask you about your hope because you haven't been that vocal about your hope. You haven't outed yourself as a Christian at work or at school. It's just not part of how you speak or act. Maybe no one's asked you about your hope because you don't go and hang out in places where hope is required. Don't hang out in places like the pregnancy center or the Alzheimer's facility or heck, even the neighbor's driveway. My friend, if nothing in the end can harm you, why not go to the hard places? Maybe your hope doesn't get noticed because you respond to trial and uncertainty like everybody else does. You blend in with a chorus of complaints where you could stand out as a soloist of hope. Now, Peter clarifies that this hope that we have isn't hollow. It's not just hope for hope's sake. Christians know, he says, Christians know why they believe what they believe. I wonder, friend, can you explain to someone why you are confident in your future? Could you tell someone why you believe that Jesus is real? 
Have you told someone why you believe what you believe? That, that might sound daunting to you, but let me assure you, you don't need to be an articulate apologist. Friend, you just need to know who Jesus is and what he has done for you. That's it. And Peter adds that when you explain why you believe what you believe, you're to do it with gentleness and respect. You're to maintain a good conscience. You're to remember that the person in front of you is a person that you are called to honor. You need to remember that you always live before the face of God, the God who saves you and the God who loves you. I think of the man from John chapter nine, the man born blind. Jesus heals him and this man is put on trial. Why, do you, why are you speaking well of Jesus? How does he defend himself? How does he give a reason for the hope that is within him? Simply put, what does this man say? I was blind, now I see. You don't need to be an articulate apologist. A Christ-centered hope, finally, will give you perspective. We've said this, this firm and steady hope that nothing in the end can harm you. It will regulate your fears. It will make you compelling. It will give you perspective. Look back at verse 16. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, I think verse 16 has both a present and a future dimension to it. So it's been a theme in 1 Peter that our good behavior in Christ, that our distinctly Christian behavior is meant to nullify any charges against us. That when the accusations against us will prove false both now and in the end when Jesus returns. So this tells you that if nothing in the end will harm you, nothing in the end will take you away from God. This tells you that it's not on you to sort everything out. God himself will take care of that. It's not on you to sort out all of the evil and injustice in the world. It doesn't mean you're indifferent to it, but it means you can still have peace. Miroslav Volf is a theologian from Croatia, and he lived through the Yugoslav War in the 1990s and witnessed the genocide that came with it. And he was asked how he could live his life without a constant rage for what he had witnessed. And here is what he said. I think it's an, it relates to 1 Peter 3.16. He says, I can be nonviolent in this life because I know God is going to sort it out in the next life. Hope can give you that kind of perspective. Now look again at verse 16, and I want to clarify something for you, friend, that the only way that you can stand before God and not be put to shame is if you trust in Christ now to stand in your place. The perfect life that he has lived that you haven't, the death that you deserved but that he took in your place. That is the only way you could stand before God and not be put to shame. He is the one who took the shame you deserve upon himself. Friend, if you have not clearly and decisively done that, we want nothing else more for you today. Would you talk to me, one of our pastors, afterward? Now let's complete this passage, verse 17. Peter adds to this hope-oriented perspective. He says, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So nothing in the end will harm you or take you away from God. That means that right now you don't need to escape the pressures of this life by going your own way. That's what this is saying. This is saying that when things aren't going well, you don't need to worry that God you know, secretly has it out for you. This is saying that when things aren't going well, you don't need to worry that God has somehow lost his handle on your life or he has lost his handle on the world. Now this reminds you that if the end is secure, 
then so also is the present right now. This reminds you that if God is worth trusting for your eternity, that God is also worth trusting for your present. As Peter closes, he reminds us that God will not just bring an end to your suffering. He reminds us that in his mysterious and his wise and his good will, that God permits suffering in your life and redeems it for your good. If that is true, then that is a hope that gives you a perspective that can sustain you through anything, just like it sustained Corey and Betsy Tenbu. One more story from them. So when they entered this large dormitory I mentioned earlier, Corey asked Betsy, Betsy, how are we going to live in a place like this? So Betsy just remembered what they had read in the Bible that morning from 1 Thessalonians. They read, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So they went ahead and they counted their blessings one by one, and they thanked God for them. They thanked God that they were still together. They thanked God that the Bible that they had smuggled in hadn't been managed to be discovered yet. They thanked God, even that they were crowded in with so many other people because that meant so many other people would now hear the word. You know, but the first thing that they noticed in this large dormitory was the fleas everywhere, all over their beds, all flying in the air. So Corey asked her sister, what about the fleas? How on earth can we thank God for the fleas? But Betsy insisted, we need to do that. Thank God for the fleas. So a few months go by, Corey and Betsy spend the months holding Bible studies every night for women across the European continent in this large dormitory. And over all these months, no guard, no supervisor ever disrupted, ever entered in, ever suspected, ever snuck around at night. And it wasn't until several months later that they learned why no guard or supervisor would ever step into their dorm. It was because of the fleas. They didn't dare step into the fleas. Thank God for the fleas. Because of Jesus, nothing in the end will finally harm you. And even right now, what he permits in your life is always purposeful. And it will always turn out for your good. That is a hope that can sustain you in suffering. So friends, here's what we covered. That because of Jesus, even when we suffer for his name's sake, we can stick together. We can love our enemies and we can maintain our hope. Let's pray. Father, we say um, we have not trusted you as you are worth trusting. We say that we are so much weaker and fragile than we realize. We say that at the slightest amount of pressure, we seem to cave in and panic. We thank you, Lord, that our relationship with you is settled not on our performance, but on Christ's. For his sake, Lord, would you work in us 
to trust you more. And we understand that that will come as you allow suffering in our lives. So God, help us by your grace that when you allow that, help us to stick together and to love our enemies and to maintain our hope. We thank you that this hope is unshakable, that nothing in the end can take us from you. And it is because of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen.